Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daney. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. Hi there, big interview listeners, and welcome to a bonus interview. My guest today is not a footballer or a coach, past or present. He is, however, an Englishman who helped win several Champions Leagues for Real Madrid and the hidden English factor in Arsenal's invincible season. Please may I introduce you to Paul Burgess, who was in charge of the pitch in the last days of Highbury, the first at the Emirates, and was then recruited by Real Madrid to save a lost cause, the dreadful playing surface at the Bernabeu. They told him they thought it was impossible. He showed them it wasn't. This is something new for the big interview, but it's football from a different angle, told by the man who is undisputedly at the top of his game, perhaps the best in the world. You'll be fascinated to hear the pitfalls, the political infighting, the difficulties and the excellence of Paul Burgess in charge of the pitches at Arsenal and Real Madrid. This, I promise you, is spellbinding. If you enjoy it, tell a friend. This, um, as you already know, lovely, lovely audience, is the big interview. I'm Graham. It's very early in the morning, in early January, and we have a treat for you now. Because in the 108, 109 interviews so far in this podcast series, you've tended to know the name of the person really, really well. And the art is trying to get them to speak about their business or their career or their pride or their life to the end that you know them better. In this instance, we're going to be speaking to somebody who's the equivalent in his business of Rob Perez or Thierry Henry or Leo Messi or even, wink, Cristiano Ronaldo. We're genuinely talking to one of the world's greatest professionals in his sphere. It's proven, it's true. But it's possible you don't know Paul Burgess. So first of all, Blackpool-loving Paul Burgess, good morning and welcome to the big interview. Good morning. Are you okay? Um, I'm thrilled, as I was trying to convey there in the intro, Paul, because um, it's taken until you've taken a slight career break for this to be an easy thing to do because you're so busy. Let's start by telling people, where have you worked since 2009? Since 2009, I've I've worked for Real Madrid Football Club and taking care of the the Bernabeu and the the training facility, uh, all the pitches, basically. And for that reason, I can introduce you to our audience as the hidden Englishman who's won four Champions Leagues, two La Ligas. And what people don't know is the Englishman responsible for the Invincibles at Arsenal. Paul, let's go right back to the beginning. Do you, on a scale, quite like grass, love grass, 
absolutely adore beautiful verdant green grass on football pitches. Which of those three? Yeah, I obviously love love grass and uh, I love football. And uh, to combine um, the two for me is obviously um, a dream. And, and um, I mean, to be honest with you, my love is more for football than it, it is for grass. Um, and it was the my bad bad level of football that that basically how else can I get involved in the beautiful game? And and that's when I um, I went down the uh, the road of grass. Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit because we're going to tell the full story. We're going to talk about your professional skills. But I'm going to ask you if you remember anything about a particular game based upon these lineups. In red and white, David Seaman, Ashley Cole, Martin Keown, Oleg Lushny, Saul Campbell, Patrick Vieira, Robert Pires, Gilberto Silva, Dennis Bergkamp, Sylvian Viltord, Thierry Henry, Later in the game, Palamine Lauren came on, so did Giovan Bronckhorst and Colo Touré. Now, the opposition that day for Arsenal were Chelsea. Carlo Cudicini, Babayero, Desai, William Gallas, Lasol, Melcher, Lampard, Petit, Kikita Lucas, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Gianfranco Zola, on came Mario Stanich, Jesper Gronkjaer and Eider Johnson. I'm not going to give you the year, but the date was the 1st of January. The result was Arsenal 3-2. What does that game mean to you and why am I reading it out? If it's the game I think it is, um, it was a game where pretty much every game in the Premier League was called off that day and we won 1-0. Is that the game you're talking about? 3-2 on January the 1st. Every other game in the Premier League was called off. And what I want you to explain is why that game is particularly relevant to you. And I want you to explain what your job was and how old you were. Okay, well, yeah, basically, obviously, my first job is to make sure games go ahead. And um, I remember we we played, I think we played Liverpool three days earlier, and um, it was really, really wet conditions. And then three days later, we played Chelsea at home on, on, um, I think it was New Year's Day, as you said. And um, basically, we had to do everything we could to get the game on. But unfortunately, by getting the game on, it meant I had a pretty, quite a bit of stick the, in the following weeks ahead because obviously the damage caused by getting the game on was, was quite immense. But, but it, in the day, that, that was my, my first remit. And I'm, I'm proud that I've never had a game called off uh, while, while I've been working at any football club. But when you say we, t- tell me your, your job and your age on Wednesday, the 1st of January 2003. Why was it your responsibility to get the game on? Well, it's my responsibility to make sure that the surface is safe and playable for for the game, and and obviously there's a lot at stake. You, you've got a you got all the hospitality catering done. You've got a, all the fans travelling to the stadium. You've got you've got a, obviously all the police and everyone's on on extra money as well because it's New Year's Day. Um, so th- there'd have been thirty five thirty eight thousand disappointed fans that day if uh, the game wasn't on. Plus, I think it was televised as well. Um, so obviously it's um, it's a it's a big it's a big thing that the game goes ahead. What was your job title? A head groundsman. What was your age? Two thousand three. So I'd have been um, twenty five. Why? How? In what manner did you come to be responsible for the one of the the most beautiful pitches that I've ever seen? I was working in England at the time. Highbury is. I'm not a gunner, but Highbury is. Highbury's off the scale. Highbury was. Off the scale. In this podcast series, you, you don't know, but I've often talked to, for example, we interviewed Charlie Nicholas, Kev Campbell, Alan Smith, Paul Dickoff, Big Per and Mertesacker, and every time I, I'm insatiable, I can't hear enough about the beauty and the magnificence of hybrid. But people talk about its architecture, the marble, people talk about the patrician air of all the people there, but the pitch, the pitch was beautiful. How did you come to be in charge of Highbury's pitch in your early 20s? Okay, well, I started working there in 1996. And then in 1999, uh, my boss, um, then head groundsman Steve Braddock, who's a bit of a legend in the, in the industry himself, um, basically moved, moved to the new training facility, which Arsenal built in London Coney. And at the age of 21, I became the head groundsman of of Highbury, so it was kind of like a right place at the right time. But um, obviously, the club um, had confidence in me to to um, 
obviously continue the good work of uh, Steve. And, and it was actually after um, I took over in, in 99, people didn't actually realise I was in charge until a couple of weeks after the game you just spoke about, uh, that Chelsea game, because the pitch was like really good all the time. And uh, so everyone just just um, assumed that uh, Steve Braddock was still the head groundsman. And I, I used to go home at night, listen to the commentary on Match of the Day, getting pretty frustrated at, at the beginning. And in the end, I took it as a positive. I took it as a compliment, a compliment that, that the, the best groundsman in the, um, in the Premier League hadn't been there for three years and, and they still think he was, he still, they still thought he was there. So I turned it into a bit of a, a positive. And then all, all of a sudden... We had the Chelsea game, and and um, and then I think we played Fulham a couple of weeks later, and everyone was like, "What's happened to the pitch?" And all of a sudden, my name was born. Uh, it was Paul Burgess's pitch, <laughs> and uh, so I had a bit of a tough ride for a couple of months. But um, uh, we, we got we got beyond that, and, and everything was uh, was good afterwards. Given that what we're going to go on to describe is that you mastermind the way in which Arsenal's new stadium can have a pitch that's at least as good as Highbury. We're going to go on to describe the role you had in helping make Real Madrid, you know, a devastating force during the time you're there. And I know you'll never, t- obviously never take um, credit for the, you know, the football, the signings, the the quality of the techno- technological um, um, improvements around you that you in your industry, but you have been central to all of that. And therefore, it's really important to understand how, how do you, how did you get into that industry and, and travel through it so quickly that by 21 you're handed such massive responsibility at Arsenal? Well, one one thing you didn't mention before Arsenal, I actually worked for my, my boyhood team, Blackpool FC, for a year and a half. Um, and basically when I was about 14 years old, um, work experience came up at school proper work experience back then when, when health and safety didn't exist and and um and all the police checks etc etc and and um I did I did some work there uh for work experience um a teacher thought I was crazy that I wanted to be a groundsman at Blackpool FC and um so I went and did a work experience and then I, I got a summer job and and then I um went to college for a year and then after that I went to college one day a week and, and continued working at Blackpool FC and then when I was 18, um, a job came up for an um, assistant groundsman of a North London um, football club. And um, I didn't know which one it was. It could have been Tottenham, it could have been, it could have been Arsenal. And I had to apply via some company in Leicester. And I, I, I applied and it turned out to be um, Arsenal Football Club. And, and then Steve Braddock, who was the head groundsman, was a guy who for sure was one of the best if not the best to learn off it was like very you would make you work like uh, 150 hours a week seven days a week and and um you basically just lived the job and and um it was the best best experience ever really and and, and then obviously uh the, the team was doing very well at the time Wenger had just started two months before uh I'd started started so it's quite an exciting time at the t- at the club and um and then obviously the training ground the new training ground came on board so again, it was a bit of right time, right place. But um, I was obviously producing the results to to take that opportunity. And then um, in 2003, I, I got approached by UEFA to uh, oversee the Euro 2004 tournament in Portugal as well. So I was, I was overseeing the 10 stadiums for for Euro 2004. Um, and then obviously we had the 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 new stadium which opened um, in 2000 and six at the Emirates Stadium obviously that work starts four years before it's not a case of oh we'll have a new stadium and then it starts you know it all starts on a piece of paper and architects and and all the rest of it and um, a lot of research and studying and and going around looking at new ideas and new concepts and I put together um, um, a combination of technologies for for the Emirates Stadium that didn't didn't exist basically Um, I'll give, give you one example, which uh, a lot of your listeners will, would have seen probably in the background on, on a game day, when the, at the end of the game, the grow lights. Um, I was basically the first person in the world to buy grow lights to treat a whole football pitch. And um, we bought them at Highbury for, for the last year of Highbury just to um, get used to them in, in an easier environment before we moved over to the, to the Emirates Stadium. When you're part of a setup that sees Arsenal going unbeaten for a season, the Invincibles. Uh, 
great football, an historic club doing something that was unheard of, sensational footballers, many of whom I now know personally, and, and they're, they're really interesting, complicated characters. To describe that season, the pressures that's on a head groundsman, what part your pitches played in Arsenal staying invincible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like it depends a little bit also on on the coach and and what type of football they want to play. But I mean, Arsene Wenger, for instance, he's obviously a, a guy who who valued the pitch a lot, and 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 um, well, in fact, um, over the years, that one of the ways I, I got Arsenal to invest big money in, in into pitches was uh, I got them to believe in the the grass is like the twelfth man, and and. Um, that is certainly um, the way Arsene Wenger saw it, and and um, obviously that's all good when when things are going going well. But obviously, if there is problems, um, then you're, you're you're under huge pressure. There's no question, and you got different pressures. You got pressures from from um, weather. You got pressures from fixture build-ups. You got pressure from players getting injured. Yeah, no. At times you feel the pressure, and also the the English weather at times wasn't very fair. So I mean, I mean, every time we played at home, we would have torrential rain, and then the next weekend, Tottenham would be at home, and I'd be having a barbecue in the garden. Like uh, so, uh, <laughs> so um, sometimes you get it. Some some seasons you get like um, um, tough seasons. Other seasons you get good ones, and, and obviously you you always compare with, with um, whoever you. Whoever is your strong competition that year, you're always compared to see what they're doing in, in terms of uh, the weather as well, their, their games. And, and the, the standards, standards over the years have, have gone up massively. And one of the big reasons for that was the grow lights back, back in the day. And, um, but if you, look at, if you look at the pitches now compared to, say, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they have come, they have come on a, a long way. And, and, and you know, there's a lot, like I say, the, the clubs invest a lot of money in... And they invest a lot of money in the sports science of it, and 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 having a player earning four hundred thousand euros a week or pounds a week, and he's sat on the injury table, is um it's a, it's a problem. It's, it's it's not it's a problem for the groundsman. It's a problem for the coach. It's a problem for for everybody. Because there's a certain degree to which, I mean, you don't produce these pitches, but a bad pitch, whether it's maybe a little bit too hard or studs give way too easily impact injuries, stress injuries, but pitches can contribute to, to injuries, can't they? 60% of all injuries, basically there's no contact with anyone or anything other than the grass. That doesn't mean 60% of injuries are down to down to pitches. It could be down to fatigue, it could be down to bad warm-up, it could be down to diet, it could be down to all of those things, but certainly there's an element which will be down to the pitches as well, yeah. And that can be down to pitch hardness, pitch softness, um, poor traction, um, various various things, um, poor drainage. Tell tell me what Arsene Wenger was like to to work with as a. I mean, I don't know whether he was counted as your direct boss or not, but <clears throat> the 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 degree to which he loved his football played on the deck, the ball to flow really quickly, the degree to which he he, he in my mind became a little bit like Steve Braddock because the only guy who was ever involved in the stadium design at Arsenal and the new training was Arsene Wenger, the professor. Whereas he must have been either asking you for things, asking you about things. I know him reasonably well. I've met him a few times, um, many times, in fact. What was he like for you to work with as a, let's call him a boss? Yeah, he was a great guy, good, good guy. He, um, he, he, was a, he, he was someone who had um, his ideas clear on, on how he wanted things. And he he would leave you to do that, and and, and um, if if for whatever reason um, we didn't meet the expectations, he would ask intelligent questions as to why, and and, and he wouldn't just just uh, have a tantrum or go crazy or anything like that. And and um, but it, I mean, we worked together for thirteen years, so he he knew as well as as as, as I did that my standards were as high as is, if not higher in what I know. If the pitch wasn't right, there's nobody more devastated than, than, than me. So, so he knew I had his back and, and, um, and I think more than nine times out of 10, we, we, we delivered. And, and I think, um, 
well, probably one of the most consistent uh, people in in his in his uh, in his group, and 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 um, I mean to be fair, he was surrounded by a good strong uh, staff around him, and um, and it was it was a good machine. It was it was a successful time. Who stands out for you from that era? Because um, I work quite a lot with Lauren now, and he speaks about you. He speaks about your work and, and the turf that he was able to play on, and he covered more of that turf than most players because he was up down all around as somebody in two sections as somebody who prepared the pitch upon they were playing their magic but also as somebody who would see them to say hi or whatever on a daily basis um, between either Colney and, and the Emirates or Highbury from that era if you could pick up a couple of characters a couple of players who stands out okay this will probably surprise you now that the best player I've ever seen in my life. I mean, bear in mind I've I've worked with some pretty top players. Um, I'm not talking over a, a long period of time. I'm just talking about one season. And I can't remember what, what season it was. Um, and ba- basically, this player got injured. He did his cruciate ligaments uh, in February against Newcastle United in the FA Cup. And it was um, Robert Pires. And that's, that season... From August till February, he was untouchable. You'd be sat there in the stand and he would drop his shoulder and he would want to fall off your chair in the stand. And, and um, he won, every, he won every, every award going that season for the best player, football writers, player of the year. And he only played half the season. And that season, I've never seen anybody like him. And obviously, we all know what Thierry Henry does. We all know what uh, Dennis Bergkamp can do. We all know what Cristiano Ronaldo can do and Xavi Alonso, etc., etc. Um, but this this period of five six months, I've never ever seen anything like it. Which of them took? Which of the players took most interest in in your work and what the pitch was like? And who did you have a little bit of banter with? Tony Adams was quite particular, but it'd be weird. You'd have you'd have like Silvino would, would come up to me and say. Paul, uh, we need to make the pitch slower, which basically is dry, dry and long grass like you get in Brazil. And then Tony would be like short and fast, so the ball just goes out of place. He hasn't got to do anything basically, like so he doesn't get caught when the ball goes over the top of him. I mean, I mean, really, setting up Highbury as a fast pitch in in many ways didn't make a lot of sense because it was already the smallest pitch in the Premier League, and, and by making it faster, you're just making it smaller. Bust a myth or confirm the truth. This is a, a special section which we've never had before, but it's here for you. Bust a myth or confirm the truth. Tottenham manager Juan de Ramos was so impressed with the Arsenal pitch that his team played upon that he recommended to Real Madrid that you be signed for Real Madrid. Not true. I basically first got contacted by, by Madrid in, in um, I think it was November, November time. And then I went over there in December and I think Schuster had just been sacked. So I, I had my first meeting with them. They, they contacted me in November. Um, I was actually in Las Vegas when they contacted me. I was watching Ricky Hatton uh, boxing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, thought, I thought someone was, was uh, taking the, uh, the Michael. But, um, so anyway, I went, I went over there in, in December on two occasions <clears throat> to uh, negotiate um, a contract with them. And on both occasions, I failed to negotiate a deal. Um, now, I was representing myself, by the way. Um, so I left and I remember going to the airport uh, <clears throat> just before Christmas thinking, you greedy git, you greedy git. I'd pushed, pushed too far and, because it was, my, it was my dream to go there. I'd, I would have gone for free, really. Um, so anyway, I, f- I flew back to, to um, London at the time and then... On Boxing Day, I got a a phone call, and it was quite nice, this, because Christmas Day, I went around to my my wife's family for Christmas Day, basically. And then Boxing Day, we had uh, uh, my family in in our brand-new house, which we'd bought only three or four months earlier. And uh, I got a phone call from from Madrid saying, look, we've got an offer we want to give to you. Uh, Where should we send it? So I I told them the email address and... They sent it to me and, and basically it came through on the Boxing Day afternoon and we all sat around the, the table at Scrabble time or whatever you want to call it, um, although we didn't play Scrabble. And and um, 
And I just basically just said to my wife in front of my family, oh, we're moving to Madrid, basically. Um, and, then, and then basically in January, I went back to sign my contract. And the day I signed it, um, Huntula was signing the same day. Um, and, and then basically, because of my notice period at, at Arsenal, they wanted me to start straight away. And I said, look, I've been at Arsenal 13 years and I want to leave in a, in a correct way. So, so I... I went back to Arsenal and I gave him my um, my notice period and and then I started in, uh, officially in in Madrid. Uh, although I was doing a few you know bits behind the scenes and stuff. I started officially in in April two thousand and nine. So uh, so yeah. So so one day Ramos was there when I got there. Um, I didn't really speak with him much when I was there and I didn't really speak with him much when he was at Tottenham I, I spoke to his assistant quite a lot when he, when he was at Tottenham before the game because he spoke to good English and then basically they left also the president's changed as well f- throughout this period as well so yeah started in April and then, and then basically in the June uh, Florentino arrived and, and then that summer is when we had uh, Pellegrini was made the new coach and, and we had Cristiano Kaka Benzema Xavi Alonso Arbeloa uh, I'll be all. Before the rest of this big interview, I'd like to tell you that our entire archive of audio and video content is now on our new YouTube channel. We've begun filming all of our interviews, and there are already loads of clips with guests, including Rio Ferdinand, Connor Cody, Brendan Rogers, and Jamie Carragher, plus full interviews for you to watch and to share please do share with friends. Go to YouTube and search Graham Hunter or click on the link in the show notes to this episode and become a subscriber. I honestly think you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Which is difficult for you because, first of all, you're a foreigner. You're only just in. You haven't had time to have a really big effect on things. And, and you've reeled off those names. And everybody listening to this podcast will remember that Florentino came in with another Here Comes the Galactico era again. And he signed fantastic footballers. But they were all presented on the Bernabeu. And I only came in through from Barcelona where I live for a couple of them. But I remember the Ronaldo day, for example. The stadium was two-thirds full and it hosts, I don't know, 80,000 people. They'd been queuing in the sun all day outside and half of them were drinking, sitting outside the Bernabeu all day. Crazy, doesn't even cover it. They've got Flemin um, Eusebio and Di Stefano, um, you know, God rest both of them, on stage. And, and it's, a, it's a massive Hollywood production on your pitch. There was no pitch. There's no pitch. I, I was trying to rebuild. I was trying to rebuild a pitch, and uh, I was trying to do like a, a two-month project in four weeks. And then all of a sudden, it was, uh, we'd sign all contracts with, with contractors. I'm starting starting to do the works, and then they'd be like, "Oh no, we've got a presentation of Kaka. Oh no, we've got a presentation of Ronaldo." And it's we had to take all the machinery out of the out of the pitch, and, and in the end, we had so much machinery in the pitch. I mean, one piece of machinery, it took three or four days to break into pieces because it was too big to go up and down the access tunnel. In the end, we actually gift-wrapped tractors and, and machines in plastic, white plastic, uh, Real Madrid-branded wrapping paper. So if you, look, if you look carefully at some of the presentations, you'll see these uh, white things dotted around, and they're actually tractors uh, wrapped up in, uh, in white plastic. <laughs> So yeah, that was a crazy summer. I mean, I, mean I, I couldn't speak any Spanish at the time. It was crazy hot. I actually spent one week. I didn't go home the whole week. I, I slept on the on the players' bench, just um, working night and day. And I, I stunk like it. It, 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 would, it wouldn't have been very pleasant if you came anywhere near me. And um, it was a, it was pressure time, really pressure time. And and obviously, as I wasn't um, as I wasn't brought in by the by the new the new board, I was obviously under spotlight massively and um but thank, thankfully the, the club had already committed to the project and to the new pitch etc etc so they kind of like had to go with it whether they wanted to or, or not uh whether they wanted to or not i cannot answer that 
Um, going forward beyond that, obviously the relationship was very good, but that was um, it was definitely an interesting uh, interesting summer. And and at the end of that at the end of that season, we we hosted the Champions League final, uh, <clears throat> the 2010 um, Bayern Munich um, Inter Milan final. So that season for me was a massive season in terms of getting to know the Bernabeu Stadium, getting to know my my staff, and build a new a new department and and uh, get the club to. Um, understand my my way of working and my philosophy and and then beyond that you've also got the training facility which which obviously had massive work which we needed to go on to okay uh, then here's a point where we have to establish a couple of things first of all not everybody will know that although the Bernabeu then was already unbelievable as a stadium I mean a, a thing of genuine beauty the pitch wasn't and I'm not being rude about them it was famous that the, the shade line was covering particularly a patch in front of where the Ultra Sewer, which is the, they call it the, the stadium part, it's called the Fondo Sewer, just means the south, the, 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 the sort of deep part of the, um, what used to be terracing on the south side of the stadium. For whatever reason, that part of the pitch was bad. There was also some fungus growing. Sometimes, uh, you know, there was oil spilt on it at one stage. You had a pitch which was not at the standards you'd left behind, either Highbury or Emirates or Colney. And you weren't simply coming in because they knew you were good at your job. You were coming in because there was a problem. And the second thing I want to tie to that that you need to explain is that you went over there not speaking Spanish. How the hell do you do your job at, at, at the ultimate level with communication about that's a red line, don't do this, I want that, without the language. Very, very hard. I mean, well, first of all, in my initial meeting with, with uh, the directors, they said to me, um, we've been in this stadium since 1948 and never had a good football pitch. Is it physically possible to have a football pitch in, in reasonable condition in this stadium? That was, they kind of like, they'd given up, basically. And... Um, I was like, yes, you can. Uh, you need to do this, this, this. But, but yeah, of course you can. And and um, so that was the first thing. And then going on to the the first summer, I mean, I was headbutting brick walls and kicking things and throwing things and, and um, using a few of Alex Ferguson's motivational skills, I think. And, um, but to be fair, we got through and, and, and uh, I was working non-stop and, and basically I was... I was like a, a captain leading from the front. I wasn't just asking people to do things. I was physically doing them myself and just getting people to follow me, basically. And um, and bit by bit, people took on board what, what I was doing and bit by bit, things got better. And and then over the years, things I've developed a good a good department there and, and well, a strong department. So, but the first the first months years were were very challenging, and. Um, Learning Spanish um, was difficult, and well, it is difficult. And and um, like even even now, my Spanish is far from perfect. I can I can understand everything and speak so so, um, but I can I can get by and get by. But it but it is um, especially for for Brits. I know we're, we're, we we always use that as an excuse, but it's true. We are, we're not the greatest when it comes to languages. I know you're you're the exception, Graham. Your your Spanish is pretty good. I can swear well. I can swear well, and that's about the size of it. In 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 ways that our audience will clearly understand, what exactly were the problems that you had to solve on the Bernabeu pitch? Uh, basically, the the growing conditions were were not correct in terms of there was obviously a lot of shadow. Um, the pitch construction was not correct. The 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 type of maintenance wasn't correct. The type of machinery wasn't correct. The there was no representation of a, a department in any meetings internally in the club. So um, when I arrived at the club, the most important um, uh, part of the stadium was the presidential um, palco. The box, the president's box. Yeah, and I was like, no, that's not the most important. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, no, 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 it's not. The most important is that green area there. Because without that green area, you don't need. there's no point having a, a palco. Um, so trying to get that that um, that change of culture inside the club and and um, have uh, somebody representing the the grass in in, in the decision making and and um, and speaking with the coaches and, and with the medical staff and and all the rest of it um, that was a challenge at the beginning and 
And um, but by the end of it, I was a director by the end of it, so I'd, I'd worked my way through the the organisation pretty good. And the, you know, in the end, there was only the board and and three or four people higher than me in the, in the club. So so I, I you know I progressed from a from a gardener, as they call it, to a to a director. I don't mean this as critical of Real Madrid, but knowing what you know and having taught them what you've taught them, how could it be that one that maybe the greatest club, certainly one of the greatest clubs that's ever played this sport, that they didn't think that the pitch was integral to their philosophy, to their planning? How had it? How, how is it possible that you can forget the second most obvious thing after a ball or third most after a ball and 11 players? How? Well, I don't understand that. Well, um, probably in 1948, it probably was more of a priority. But I think over time, it rather than be, it was a it's a priority when you can fix a problem. But when when after a while you can't fix the problem, you kind of like um, hide the problem or or put the problem to one side. And I think they basically they'd given up on on um, on trying to fi- trying to find a. They just they were just done with it. They were done with it, and and I'll be honest with you. The, my first year in Madrid, when um, I upset quite a few people, the first year in Madrid, because when I did have a good pitch, there'd been quite a few people inside the organisation who had um, took the ball by the horns and um, and got stung basically. So there was quite a, there's some there's a couple of silly things going on over the years as well, like like a bit of sabotage and stuff like that back in the first couple of years. Which uh, I don't particularly want to go on too much, but there, there were some, there were some like naughty games in the first couple of years. Without going into it too much, can I direct the idea that in any massive organisation, when particularly a foreigner, a foreigner of any description, not necessarily an Englishman, comes in and says, mm, you, "You're doing it all wrong, and I can fix it," there are obviously people in any big organisation who are going to go, "Well, my nose is right out of joint." Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I mean. I mean, Madrid was a was a pretty international company, to be fair. Well, certainly now, maybe not so much back in two thousand and six, but so two thousand nine. But but um, yeah, I mean, for sure, I'd have put some people's noses out of joint. But by, by the end of my time in Madrid, uh, I, I was I was one of them. Uh, like a, like a, I was loved in, in Madrid. Maybe not loved in terms of my. Sometimes I was a little bit aggressive in in I'm a, I'm a fighter and you know I'm, I'm going to fight to the to the end kind of thing and in certain situations maybe that's not the the right way to to proceed but um, at the same time if you if you're weak um, you will get found out very very quickly in Real Madrid because uh, because it, it's full of strong characters. I know you know about this anecdote, but there's a, there's a, listen. I want to name him because he's a friend of the podcast series. He's a brilliant, brilliant journalist, storyteller, Henry Winter. He's definitely a, a close friend. And I remember one time he was over here in Spain covering a match. It happened to be at Camp Nou, and you know, just just for once, we went out after the match. I don't know if you've ever done that, or well, we've done that, and respect your to your ability to down large, large quantities of gin and tonic. So Henry and I are out in um, Pasatapas, down by the port in, in Barcelona, and we begin to talk about the impact Spanish football back then was having on England, the speed of movement of the ball, the way in which midfielders like Gerard and Lampard were saying, we can't get near them, it's unbelievable. And I said, look, part of it is the grass, part of it is the pitch. Xavi particularly, but you'll tell me who amongst Los Blancos, but Xavi in particular was a kind of pitch militant. I, I want it ultra flat. I want it moan and moan and shorter and shorter. I want it like stubble so that the ball, not quite the same as Tony Adams, so the ball will fly. And Henry was like, it, it just can't be that important. It can't be, you know, if there's a few millimetres here or there, it can't be that important to the footballers. But you've lived through an era whereby, okay, Spain had won Euro 2008, you know, partly on pitches that you'd consulted on. But what was coming was either Barcelona or Real Madrid constantly winning the Champions League. What was coming was Spain winning the World Cup in 2010, 2012, the Euro again. And that group of players, 
wanted pictures perfect. They didn't want them dry. They wanted them watered. And, and before the match, at half-time, watered in, you know, in the last five minutes, if it would have been allowed by the rules. And they wanted it short like stubble so that the ball would fly. Describe your understanding of that part of Spanish football culture. Yeah, I, well, I mean, if we, if we go back to the... Um... The Jose Mourinho time time in in, in Real Madrid, for example, um, we had the second best team in in La Liga, um, second to to Barcelona, and we won the league that season. And we won the league that season because, um, but whenever we played Barcelona, we we created a anti football environment with long long dry grass, which was to the um, the amusement of our own players. Um, Xavi Alonso especially because Xavi likes uh, likes to play football but at the same time uh, Jose Mourinho was basically saying to to our our team they are better than us at football so we have to we have to play against them in a in a different in a different way and and um, and one thing Pep Guardiola was doing really really bad at in in, the, in one season um, was every time he came across a pitch which was anti-football he made a big noise about it and all that was doing all that was doing was was creating um just encouraging people to to basically do it and so every time Barcelona played away from home they were playing against um an anti-football style style pitch and and um th- there's more to it than, than I mean obviously things like uh, grass height and and um, water are the, are the are the obvious ones in terms of they're the they're the influence you can have on a game by game um, situation. So so you can have an influence on the game. I mean during a game during a game apart from uh, the players and the words of the coach, the only other person who can have an influence on the game is, is the groundsman with um, the watering at half time and. And um, how he's prepped the pitch um, pre-match, and and um, I mean, like with Jose, for instance, we we, we prepped uh, one pitch at the training facility in anti-football mode to get us uh, ready for that game, and and um, we actually played. I think we played Barcelona three times in one season, and in a, in a very short period of time. And for all three games, I had it set up slightly different. And and uh, don't get me wrong, I hated it because. Um, Normally, when you're when you're working for a top team, you normally look at your own strengths. So you set up a pitch to suit your own strengths. But basically, this was the first time I'd worked at a big team, i.e. Real Madrid, where we were actually looking at the opposition's strengths. And and to, fair, to be fair to Jose Mourinho, he was right to do do that because they had more than we had, and, and um, so. He looked at uh, other, other, other small advantages you can have, but I mean, when it goes to players and, and pitches, I mean, when we when we returf a pitch, for instance, in the Bernabeu, they start the season we returf the pitches after having events in, in the summer, and just seeing the, I, I'm not watching, I'm not watching the game, I'm, I'm watching the um, how the ball interacts with the surface, I'm watching the body language of the player, and when when a player has no confidence in the pitch. He, he's his mind is on how I'm going to control this ball, and when he's doing that, all, all he's doing is creating a draw with the defender because um, he's he's working out how I'm going to take this ball in, and the defender is going to is working out how I'm going to tackle him. But if the player's got if the attacking player's got confidence in the pitch, he hasn't got to think about the control. He's thinking about his his next his next move. And the defender has no idea what his next move is going to be. So, is a player having having confidence in in the pitch is is vital. Is is vital. And, and if he doesn't, it, it definitely takes something off the game. And and then and then obviously the other thing is obviously things like the speed of the pitch. And I mean, quite often you'll see um, finals like your Champions League final or World Cup final. Or they're usually rubbish games most of the time. And and they're rubbish games because. The, the the pitch is as dry as anything because you, you've had you've had the opening ceremony on it. You've had players standing around for ages. They're all a bit lethargic, and 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 the whole thing's um, it's anti football. The whole pre match thing is an anti football environment, and and that's why 
Um, it, it's true. It's true. And I've I've had so many fights with with I've had so many I've had so many fights with UEFA because the um, I think I think there's some people think the opening ceremony is more important than the game and and. And um, I'd rather do a big closing ceremony than, than a, a big opening ceremony. Just get on with the game, and and uh, quite often you'll see a flat pitch in a, in a. I don't mean flat in this. I mean flat in terms of a pitch with no life. Like yeah, and 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 it's bec- it's because there's no time to do it. There's no time to to sort it out. And and um, so a pitch, a pitch does have a vital part in 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 injuries. It has a vital part in in the spectacle. If it's a fast pitch or a slow pitch. Uh, if it's a hundred mile an hour, you know the the, temp, the like you'll see um, a pitch in the rain. I mean, the pre- people like the Premier League because it, it's usually played in wet weather, so it's hundred miles an hour. Maybe the technique's not quite as good, but like a, a fast a fast pitch um, with good technique, there's nothing better. And and you put you put someone like Xavi or Iniesta or Xavi Alonso on a a, a, perf- a pitch that they can they have t- complete belief in. Their, your, their body language will be purely on playing football, and and they will just smash it. They'll smash it. But if you put them on a, a ropey pitch, then then all of a sudden they're they're being brought down a level. Our sponsors, Bet Three Six Five, want to know of your twelve years at Madrid. Pick your proudest moment. It can be a pitch, an achievement, a trophy, relationship with somebody. Your proudest moment of twelve years at Real Madrid. Probably my proudest moment was the day I left. In terms of, I walked out the. I didn't walk out the back door. I, I walked out the front door, having delivered twelve amazing years for for the club, having one of the best, if not the best, pitch in Europe, even maybe the world, turning the earth, which was obviously a, a troubled pitch every year, and then the training grounds turning an average training ground in terms of the buildings it was a special training ground but in terms of pitches it was bang average and and leaving with probably the best training facility in the, in the in the world is probably my proudest moment so my proudest moment is the the legacy I've left uh the club and and um I've left a strong department with good staff and and um yeah, so that's my proudest moment is walking out walking out the walking out the front door on my last day. What's coming down the line is a Santiago Bernabeu of literally astonishing proportions. Before we say goodbye, do you paint a picture of what that stadium, given that you played a central part in the most important part of it, not the Palco, not the President's Box, but the pitch, describe what that stadium is going to look like, feel like, be like to play upon? Yeah, well, the the stadium's going to be unbelievable when it's finished. The stadium's going to have a retractable pitch system, which is um, basically a system, a system that I designed. Um, well, sorry, I'll take that back. Uh, it was designed by another company, but badly designed in terms of how they wanted to... Um, um, but basically, when you, when you, all retractable pitches, when you, basically what, how they work is when you have um, um, a concert or something like this, you take the pitch out for the, for the concert... And, and basically, the, the idea was we move the pitch out into a small box to the side of the pitch, and have your concert, and then bring the pitch back in. And I, and I hated the system, so I told the company, "Look, nice idea, but I don't like it." And then basically, I went home and started to think a little bit more on how I could develop their their concept. And, and basically, um, rather than take the pitch out for a concert, I came up with the idea of bringing the pitch in for football. And a pitch living in a in an underground box, uh, like a like a vertical farm, and by doing so, rather than having four or five concerts per year, it gives us maybe three hundred event days per year, and it's just a complete and utter flip side of how the world has been thinking up until today. And um, so that the project that's been done is amazing, and, and um, unfortunately, last summer I had some differences of opinion should we say on on how best to to deliver this project and i've had 25 years where i've just been basically left to to find the best route from a to b to deliver the best the best pitches and and i wasn't particularly i didn't particularly like the way um a couple of members of the board wanted to go with the project and and i had my red lines and they had theirs and 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 um because of that i said look 
maybe it's time for me to move on and 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 that's why I've, I've left basically and uh, but if the, if it can be delivered and my doubts are overcome um there's no question it'll be an amazing uh, stadium and an amazing system which will give the the club major revenue but it'll also give the city up to 300 day, 300 days of events per year and it'll be a game changer for the bars for the restaurants for the hotels for the airport the train station and it could be a really important change for the city and I really hope it does work out well but I do have some reservations over the pitch but they have time where they can hopefully they can iron those those problems out but for me it was it was the time for me to uh, to walk away I think and, and um, like I say through the front door with my head held high and I was very proud to do so. Paul, our listeners have benefited from the most amazing detail about the central thing that makes football so beautiful to watch. All of us, when we first go to a football stadium, remember the moment where we walk up the stairs into a stand or a terrace, look down and the pitch kind of glows and speaks to you. And it's from that instant onwards that you love the sport, even before a ball is kicked. And you're one of the best that's ever been in that area real pleasure speaking to you thank you for taking so much time thank you very much indeed with whatever comes next the very best of luck but whatever comes next we'll share a glass of wine outside the Bernabeu on the Paseo Castellana one day when we're going to watch your pitch in action at Madrid's ground Paul Burgess thank you very much thanks Graham take care Thank you for listening to The Big Interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.